done with announcements. I get so awkward when I do that. I don't know if y'all noticed, but <laughs> I'm done with those announcements. Let's dive into the, what God has for us this morning. Let's, turn, let's all turn to Deuteronomy chapter 5. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> We've been there for two and a half months. I was getting tired of flipping to Deuteronomy chapter 5. <laughs> no, we're going we're gonna to flip to Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah 29. Praise the Lord. <laughs> Y'all don't tell him I said that. <laughs> oh, that's good. Good to know. So we're up in Jeremiah 29, and while you're flipping there, I want to give you a little bit of backstory before we just plunge right into the Scripture today, because I think that the context of, well, specifically the context of one of these verses in particular is extremely important. So here's a little background. Here's what ha what's happening in the world uh, as we flip to Jeremiah 29. Israel has been split into two kingdoms for quite some time, the North Kingdom and the South Kingdom. And, and, and for this whole time where they've been split into these, these two kingdoms, the leaders, the kings of these nations have been really, really poor. I mean, they, they just kind of stink. They're awful. Um, there really haven't been hardly any of them that are even worth talking about. And these bad leaders have over and over again led Israel away from God and away from his will. And during this time when the kingdoms are split, God delivers the southern kingdom into the hands of the Babylonians. Now, now, I want to say that again. God delivers his people into the hands of the Babylonians. And you can find that said specifically all throughout the book of Jeremiah and in Daniel chapter 1. And so the Babylonians invade Judah and they lay siege to the, to the city of Jerusalem. And they conquer the city and they march the occupants of Jerusalem out of their town, out of their city, and take them captive into exile, into Babylon. These people, the people of God, are uprooted from everything that they've ever known for the entirety of their lives. And they're marched like the slaves in Egypt, like, as, like they once were, they're marched into this new land. They're taken to Babylon. They are physically removed from their homelands. They're put into this territory where the people there serve different gods than they do where there's a foreign culture than the, ones that they're, than the one that they're used to. And all their moral standards, all of their values, and all of their traditions are different than the ones that they've always known. They look around, and they're in unfamiliar territory. They look around, and they don't really know what's going on anymore because God has placed them in exile. And to be honest with you this morning, I don't think that there's any two books of the Bible that are more relevant to the time in which we as Christians find ourselves in America today than the book of Jeremiah and the book of Daniel. And if you were here this past Wednesday night, you probably know where I'm going with this. It sounds a little bit familiar. I told you we were going to be continuing that topic today. So this sounds familiar. But for those who weren't here on Wednesday night, Man, I got to tell you, you missed out because we were talking about, how the, the, about the fact that we can have hope in God today as the church, even though it can look a little bleak from where we stand. It can little, look a little bleak, and, and, and that's what we were talking about. I caught you up, and if you were, uh, I just got totally lost. I don't know if y'all can tell. <laughs> we'll pause and, and start, start again. But, so if you were here on Wednesday, I'm going to catch everybody up real quick. Um, I'm going to catch them up to where we were. You can take a two-minute nap, and, and uh, I'll catch you back in a second. But on Wednesday, on Wednesday night, we talked about how, the people, how God's people in America today woke up in a world 
That's totally different from the one that they woke up in five, 10, 15 years ago. I'm pretty young, and I can still say that for, for, for a fact, from the beginning of my life up until now, that the world has completely changed. And I'm sure you can, you, you can too. The culture has shifted, and it's moved around to where it feels like, as we look around at where we are today, it feels like everything that used to be right is now wrong, and what is wrong is now right. And it can feel as if we have been backed up against the wall by the culture that we find ourselves in. It feels like the church has been backed up against the wall. Because we're right here in the middle, we're right here in the middle of this era that theologians and historians have dubbed the post-Christian era. The post-Christian era, and what I mean by that, and what they mean by that is that where the church and where Christianity used to have a stronghold in this nation, where they used to be the main factor that was shaping and molding the values and the morals of this country, that's no longer the case. It can feel today as if the, as if the church is surrounded, as if we are captives in exile, just like the Israelites were in Babylon. It almost seems as if we've been picked up and dropped into a place that's totally different from the one that we've spent our entire lives in, one where the Bible doesn't seem to have the same authority that it used to. And so, to, so today, as we look back and we see the good old days, we ask the exact same question that we asked on Wednesday night, what are we going to do? As the people of God, what do we do when our morals and our traditions and our belief and our worldviews aren't shared by those around us any longer? What do we do when the society around us wants us to live one way, but our God tells us to stay in the sandbox, which is what we've been talking about for the past two and a half months? What do we do when we feel like society today is trying to drag us by our feet out of that sandbox where we've been living in God's blessings? On Wednesday night, we saw that God answered us with a very simple three words from 2 Kings chapter 6. It was, do not be afraid. That's four words. Don't be afraid. That's three. <laughs> and we looked at how, how we can have hope in God during this period of exile. But today, I think that God wants to give us specific instructions on how to approach this situation. So we're going to ask the question today, how do we thrive as a people in exile? How do we embrace exile? And that's the sermon of my title today, Embracing Exile. And it's based slightly right here on this book by Scott Daniels titled Embracing Exile, um, Living Faithfully as God's Unique People in the World. And if you don't have this book, um, if you haven't heard about it, go on Amazon right as soon as we're over, uh, right as soon as we're done here, buy it and read it. It is an amazing book. Um, but let's get into the scripture today. I know we've been sit sitting and waiting for about 10 minutes. So we're, we're going to jump into Jeremiah 29 because this is where Jeremiah 29 comes in. He's writing, Jeremiah is writing this letter to the exiles in Babylon. It's a letter that he sent to the people of Jerusalem, the, the prophets and all the other that King Nebuchadnezzar had dragged into exile. And we're going to start in verse 4 here. Verse 4. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that you too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace 
and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. Because if it prospers, you too will prosper. And we're going to skip down to verse 10 right here. This is verse 10. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and to give you hope and a future. And I want to stop right here at, at Jeremiah 29, 11, and I want to stop and I want to point out something to you. Um, and honestly, this has very little to do with my message today, but I want us to look at this verse in particular, Jeremiah 29, 11, in the context of what we're reading it in. And I, I've, I've got to be pretty careful here, I think. No, actually, I, I'm just going to be blunt. Jeremiah 29, 11 is not about you. Jeremiah 29 11 is not speaking to the college graduate to tell them that they have a job right as soon as they graduate. It's not speaking to you that you're going to get that promotion next month. Jeremiah 29 11 is not about you, but it's about God's people in exile and what, what God is telling to his people in the situation that they're facing. He's saying, have no fear for I have a plan for you. I have a plan for my church and they will be victorious. And that's what God is saying in Jeremiah 29, 11. It's not to me specifically. It's not to you specifically. It's to his church, to his people today. And I better, I better, I'm about to get excited, so I better back off because this has nothing to do with my message. <laughs> oh, man. All right, so well, let's get to it. Let's, <laughs> I'm going to get off that. I'll come back to it later maybe. But let's take a look at the three things. Let's take a look at three specific things that God doesn't tell his people to do in Jeremiah 29. The first thing that God doesn't tell his people to do in the situation of exile, number one, he never tells them to complain. He never, ever, never once in this chapter says that it's okay to complain about the situation that they're in. He doesn't tell them to go around talking about, how the, about the good old days and how awesome the good old days were when they were back in Jerusalem and they could do whatever they wanted. He doesn't tell them to be grouchy because they've been dragged to this foreign land. He never tells them that it's okay to do this. And it's important as Christians today, as Christians in America, that we don't become complainers either. Philippians 2.14 says, Do all things without grumbling or questioning. 1 Corinthians 10.10 says, Do not grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now here's what I don't want us to miss today. It's okay for us to lament the fact that cultural Christianity is no longer present in our world. That's okay. It's okay for us to lament that and, and, to, and to weep over it. That's okay, but don't complain about it. Don't complain about it. Don't go around saying, oh, woe is me. The world is just headed for destruction. I long for the days when all you heathens were Christians. Don't complain like that. Because complaining only accomplishes two things this morning. And I think that you can agree with me. The first thing that complaining accomplishes is that it annoys everyone around you. And I can say this myself because I too am one of you. I am a complainer. Um, you can ask my wife, Melanie. She knows more than anybody. But I am a complainer, so I can say this, but it is annoying. Complaining is annoying. It gets on your nerves. It immediately turns off whoever is listening to you. And the second thing that it does is that it turns your audience against you. And so as a complainer, I can say this. 
Because whenever we're, we're complaining, and that's, nothing, that's all we do is, is, oh, woe is me, yada, yada. And when you're listening to that, you immediately turn off what the person is saying, don't you? You immediately turn off what they're saying. And in fact, if you're anything like me, when you hear that over and over and you get annoyed with somebody, you, out of spite, start to disagree with them. And so that's what you do. That's what people do when all, all they hear us all they hear us do is complain. And so if we go into this world and all we do is complain, all we say is, oh no, things used to be so much better, the first thing that they're gonna do is that they're gonna turn us off. They're gonna quit listening to us. And the second thing they're gonna do is they're gonna unfollow us on Facebook. Boy, that, I, I, really, I really botched that joke. We're gonna, <laughs> we're gonna try this again. The second thing they're gonna do is unfollow us on Facebook. <laughs> all right. <laughs> <laughs> Golly. <laughs> All right, let's look at something else that God doesn't tell us to do in this scripture. He doesn't tell us to complain, and he never once tells the Israelites in Babylon to combat. He never tells them to combat. He doesn't say that they are to fight against the exile that they are placed in. He doesn't tell them that they are to go and tell the Babylonians everything that they're doing wrong. He doesn't tell them to go scream and yell and defend themselves. In fact, I think, he tells, I think he tells them the exact opposite. What his instruction is, is, is more like, hey, just sit and wait for me. Because exile is not the time to rally the troops and storm into battle. And I think that we can learn a lot from this today. Because sometimes I think that we see it as our personal responsibility to transform the world. We see it as our responsibility. We see it as our responsibility to get them back to Jesus. But let me tell you something, you aren't gonna get them back to Jesus. Only Jesus is gonna do that. Only Jesus is gonna do that. And so when we, and when we fight and we combat and we try to defend God, I think that we have to be so careful because yes, there is a right time and a right place to proclaim, pro proclaim the truth to somebody. But we have to know when that truth is. We, we have to know when that time and when that place is to proclaim that truth. But also I think that when we do this, sometimes we can tend to misrepresent God. We can tend to misrepresent the things that he actually intends. Sometimes, sometimes I think that when we approach the world combatively, that we begin to see the people around us as the enemy. But that's not what God has for them because our God of mercy and of love and grace doesn't see them that way. He sees them as children too. So don't fight. Don't be combative. Don't try to shove Jesus down their throat or hold up signs that say turn or burn because that's not going to turn them towards Jesus. Let me tell you something, no one has ever in the history of Christianity ever been turned to Jesus because of a fight that they had with somebody. No one has left a heated argument with somebody and said, man, I really want to follow the God that that guy serves. Nobody has ever done that. And God doesn't want us to be angry about what's going on today. He doesn't want us to be mad. He doesn't want us to get ticked about it. He wants us to get broken about it. He wants us to be broken about the things that are going on around us. And he wants us to embrace them with the love and grace of Jesus because they aren't the enemy. It's our job to love. And it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict. 
And it's God's job to sanctify. So don't be combative. The third thing that we don't see God telling the Israelites to do in this passage of Scripture is he never tells them to compromise. He never tells them to compromise. And I want to point specifically to the Scripture here because Jeremiah addresses this in verse 6. He says, Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. And right here, increase in number there. Do not decrease. And yes, I do think that he meant don't let yourselves die off, but I also think that he meant don't become a part of the Babylonians. Don't embrace the, wor- the values of the world around you. And this is the same command that I think he has for us today. We aren't to neglect the truth or the teachings of the Bible. We aren't to conform to the world because the enemy, and I'm not talking about the people out there, but the enemy wants nothing more than for the church to conform to the values of society. He wants nothing more than for us to water down our message of change and renewal. He wants nothing more for there to be no discernible difference between us and them, between the church and the world. But we will not compromise on our beliefs. We will not conform and we will preach grace and we will preach truth and we will live for the glory and the coming of the kingdom of God. And I'm gonna come back to this in a second because now we've looked at three things that he tells us not to do. Now I want us to look at three things that God does instruct his people to do in Jeremiah 29. In exiles, as exiles in captivity, number one, he doesn't tell them to complain, but to pray. Don't complain, but pray. Verse seven says this, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. Because if it prospers, oh man, this is so good. If it prospers, you too will prosper. Today is the church. I don't think that there is a single thing that's more important for us to do in this post-Christian era than to pray for the country and the community and the world that we live in. Because as the church, as the church of God, as the church of Jesus, we cannot be the force of division in this country. We can't be caught complaining in this world, but we have to be the ones fighting for unity. Because if we don't fight for unity, then who's going to do it? We have to be fighting for a unity that only God can bring. We have to pray, God, bring this land that we live in peace and prosperity because he's the only one that can do it. Complaining isn't going to bring anyone peace. So instead of complaining about our politicians, why don't we pray for them? Instead of complaining about how bad things are in the world around us, why don't we pray that God shows us the bigger picture? Instead of complaining about the sin that surrounds the church today, why don't we pray that God will give us the strength and the courage to love? In this time of exile, I think that the very first thing that we should be doing is hitting our knees in fervent prayer to God for our community in our country, in our world, that he will give them peace and prosperity. The second thing that God instructs them to do is not to combat, but to embrace. 
Verse five says this. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. <laughs> I'm big enough to admit that this verse may be a little bit of stretch for what I'm about to say. <laughs> but what I think that God is telling them here is don't rush off and try to fight this battle yourself. But settle in and wait on me. To his church today, I think he is telling us not to get angry about the sin and the darkness around us, but like I said earlier, get broken for it. Because it's there, and that brokenness and that hurt is discouraging. But don't get mad. Let your heart break for those lives around you. Instead of sounding the horn and rushing into battle, why don't we take the time to listen and to talk to and to understand the people around them? Why don't we get to know the people around them? Why don't we let our heart break to them to show them true grace and compassion and the love of Jesus, the kind that he showed to those around him? Because like I said earlier, they're not our enemy. We are not fighting against them, but we are fighting for them. And to fight for them, and this is, this, this is good too. Man, I'm getting excited. To fight for them, we don't have to fight at all. Because when we show them the grace and love and compassion, Jesus does the fighting. So get this, don't, don't be of the world. Don't be of the world, but be in the world, doing the work for the kingdom of God. Don't ever think that someone is too bad off for Jesus to turn them around, but love them because he did it for you. And if he can save you from the mess that you are in, and if he can save me from the mess that I was in, then I think that he can do it for anyone. So don't fight against them, but fight for them and embrace them with the love of Jesus Christ. The final thing that I think that God calls his exiles to do during this period is this. He, tells them, he never tells them to compromise, but to be set apart. To be set apart. We don't see this particularly in Jeremiah 29, but we see it all throughout the Bible from Genesis to Revelations, and we see it specifically all throughout the book of Daniel about how the exiles in Babylon that Jer Jeremiah was writing this letter to, they stood out in the place that they had been placed in. I mean, I think about the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I think about Daniel in the lion's den. So many stories in the book of Daniel shows how they were set apart during that period of exile. And that is exactly how we are called to be in this post-Christian era in which God has placed us. I think about the verse, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, and it says this, and this is my favorite verse in Scripture. I mean, absolutely all-time favorite. It's 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. This is what it says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. He says that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. And today he's not talking about one race of people. He's not talking about the nation of America. He's not talking about one nation in particular. He is talking about his people. They are a chosen people, a holy people. 
And that's what we're called to be in this dark world today. We are to be transformed by the Holy Spirit. Set apart from others in this sinful world that we live in. Not physically, but they should be able to see a visible, definite difference in our life. Because if we compromise on everything, and we show only grace with no truth in the mix, if we compromise on everything, then yes, at least they won't think that Jesus is weird, but they also won't have a need for him. Because following Jesus will look just like not following Jesus. But they should look at us and think, why are you like this? Why are you so different? What's wrong with you? Because what's wrong with us and what's wrong with you is that you show a light in this dark world. And it is appealing and it is pleasing because it is the kingdom of God. God has called us to live whole in the middle of this brokenness. And when we live whole as the people of God in the middle of this broken, sinful world, the brokenness has to look at the wholeness. And the brokenness has to look at the holiness and think that is a better way to live. Because that's the way that God designed us to live from the very beginning, set apart so that we can be a dynamic, living example, so that we can just be a snapshot of what life is supposed to be like. But it's hard for them to see that over the complaining. It's hard for them to get close when we live combatively. And sometimes we compromise to the point where they don't even know who to talk to because our lives don't look any different from theirs. But let me ask you something. What would happen? What would happen if we lived consistently according to our convictions in a way that showed the life of Christ I think that when we live consistent to the teaching and the convictions and the character of Christ, that it shows Jesus to this world. And that has the power to transform the culture because he is the one that transforms the culture, not us. He is the one that has that power. And when we live like Christ, it gives us a message that people want to hear. They want to hear that message because the people of this world are hurting and they're broken. And they're searching for hope. And we have that hope today. Over the past two weeks, um, I have just been so blessed. So very blessed to hear of countless stories about God's faithfulness and transforming power in his people. I think about one, uh, this last Thursday, I went to go see Sandy and Charlie Pittman um, after his surgery in the heart hospital. And we talked for over an hour, over an hour about the power of God. And they told me story after story about God meeting people where they are and transforming their lives. And over and over the past two weeks, it seems that God has just met me here. And God has filled my life with these stories from his people. And it gives me hope. Because that message of transformation is the message that the world wants to hear. They want to hear about a God that changes everything. They know that there's something out there that is so much bigger than they are. 
They know there's something out there that they can't explain, that there's an explanation for everything that's happening. They just don't have the answer, and we do. We have an answer, and his name is Jesus. And he changes everything. In this dark world, we are called to be the light. A bright light that stands out, that cannot be ignored, that cannot be extinguished. And in a world full of darkness that is searching for a light, evangelism is easy because we have the light that they're searching for. So embrace the exile. Don't complain, but pray. Don't combat, but embrace. And don't compromise, but be set apart. Because out of exile... Well, let's go back to the scripture and see what comes out of exile. Jeremiah verse 10 says this, and it's not gonna be be up on the screen, but Jeremiah verse 10. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and to give you a future. You see, out of exile comes God's blessing. Out of exile comes God's blessing. Let's pray. Dear God, I know that it is so easy for us to look around at the world that we live in and to get discouraged and and honestly even, even disgusted. But God, we are so thankful for the message that you give us, the transforming message of Jesus. God, I pray that as your church finds itself in the situation of exile today, that we don't complain, God, but we scream out to you. God, I pray that we don't try to fight the people around us, but we embrace them with your love and your mercy. God, I pray that we never compromise that we never let the darkness overtake us, God, but we don't compromise, Lord, but we are set apart, God, that we are your chosen people. But Lord, to do that, to be set apart, we need your strength. We need your strength and your courage, God, because it's difficult. Lord, I thank you so much for giving us that strength, Lord. I thank you so much for giving us a light, for giving us hope, for giving us the promise that you changed everything once when you sent your Savior, when you, when you sent our Savior Jesus to die on the cross, God. And I thank you that when he rose again, he rose with the promise to do it again, to do it again. We thank you so much for being present here today in this service. We ask these things in your name. Amen. You guys are just-